out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a guest or two. This week, it's going to be the turn of Ultramarine, who I spoke to recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. They formed in 1989, Ian Cooper, Paul Hammond, and uh, their debut album from 1991, titled Every Man and Woman is a Star, was... um, Issued on Rough Trade Records, they've recently also have brought out a 12-inch single with the amazing artist Anna Anna Domino, who we love for many reasons. She did an amazing track called Lake many decades ago. Anyway, this is the interview, and just to say, for various reasons, because there's the both uh, both of them talking together. So Ian Cooper's the person who speaks first. You'll get the gist. And then Paul inter, um, occasionally interjects as well. We keep it quite nicely balanced. And also we had to do it in three little sections because it was on a Zoom call that gave us something like 30 or 40 minutes and then we had to um, sign off, sign on. Yes, it was like being on the dole in the 1980s and 90s, wasn't it? Anyway, so there's a bit of stopping and starting. It's like the okie but for old people on Zoom or Teams, whatever. Anyway, look, this is the interview. So after several minutes of uh, interesting, engaging chat, which gets edited out, we get done to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. This one is over to Ian before Paul talks. Anyway, enjoy. Well, I mean, a lot of it was shared with Paul, to be honest, because, um, you know, we knew each other at uh, you know, a pretty early age in our teens. So I think there was, um, you know, there was a lot of discovering of the, you know, the, the factory bands and uh, you know, rough trade and crep school from a, you know, a pretty formative um, age, really. You know, New Order and a certain ratio were you know, enormous kind of influences right. um, on us back then. And... Um, and obviously, you know, we've kind of followed them throughout their their careers. You know, you don't uh, you, you don't give up on your heroes um, you know, that quickly. Yes. And were you, I mean, before that, did you sort of go through sort of any kind of glam rock, punk period, prog rock? No, I mean, I was, I mean, I, I like kind of various kind of pop stuff. Um, I did have some kind of prog interests in, uh, in Yes. I had kind of a, quite a collection of uh, Roger Dean Kind of uh, gatefolds and uh, multi-folding out things. Um, so was it Van Gelis or Bateman that you were particularly fond of? <laughs> um, I actually like the um, Chris Squire, the bass player. Right. Uh, I, I don't think I probably fully appreciated, um, uh, you know, all, all the kind of guitar pyrotechnics of kind of Steve Howe at the time. And I, I remember being amazed at the kind of range of guitars he seemed to play and uh, um, all kind of manners of stringed instruments. Um, or indeed, kind of Bill Bruford, you know how kind of uh, technically kind of great they were as musicians. But uh, the bass just had a different sound immediately. That was very, yes. uh, very appealing. Nice. And yeah, Paul, I think it's, it, well, it's interesting thinking back to that because I, th- I think when Ian, Ian and I first met, when I, I'm not quite sure how old we were, I suppose probably maybe about 16. Do you think Ian, something like that, or maybe slightly younger? Maybe slightly before, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I seem to remember Ian had a slightly more s- sophisticated musical <laughs> um uh background than i did in the in the, he did that have remains like, this day doesn't it <laughs> well, indeed yeah he did have things like yes and some slightly proggy stuff um um 
and actually I think you've done guitar lessons as well so you were a bit more yes, sort of advanced than I was um I mean I think as I said to you the other day David I, I had a very um I was actually quite late I think to buying yes records I th- I'm pretty sure we were asked the Ian and I were asked the other day what about the first records we bought and I think the first one I bought was um the seven inch single of Mr Blue Sky by by ELO which I think was 1977 or 78, something like that, I think. Yeah. Um, possibly 78. Um, and, 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 you know, prior to that, you know, I'd, you know, I bought, you know, I had a Shawadi Wadi album, you know, in 1974 and, a, and an Elvis album and, you know, a couple of things like that. But I wasn't sort of, I, I don't really remember sort of religiously. I did watch Top of the Pots, but I didn't, I don't, not really with any interest, I don't think, until the late, 70s really when I got into things like the jam um I guess when I was about probably you know for uh, that being like sort of 14 15 something like that I suppose 14 yeah. like so um, then yeah I was going to say then because because I, I was too young for punk and even post-punk but then it was the indie period you know which I've got down to sort of 83 to 87 which was the years of the Smiths so what were your 80s like because there was kind of a big change wasn't there it was the independent scene that didn't just feature the Smiths and people like that but there was a whole raft of other things coming in and I, that was when I discovered John Peel as you do and and suddenly him sort of turned me on to all those other bands like um you know or you know the Bundy's boys or augustus pablo and napalm death so it was like wow that's a lot of new music from you know that didn't sound like yes and genesis what about yourself what was your 80s like um you we were i mean one, yeah, one of the highlights i think kind of for us was um you know we had um yeah, essex university in colchester um up the road so there was uh, some fantastic kind of concerts um, kind of put on there, um, you know, kind of Gang of Four, kind of au pairs, of, you know, kind of highlights. Um, P-Fab Sprout, they did, uh, just after Swoon had come out, that was a fantastic uh, yeah. uh, evening there. So I mean, it, it really was, you know, quite a, a broad range of bands, you know, some kind of, you know, some things a bit more kind of uh, you know, thrashy. And obviously, you know, the Smiths were a, a kind of a huge presence during that time as well. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really remember having much kind of build up to getting into seriously into music. I, 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 from what I recall of it, I kind of just dived straight into it really through Peel. It was about, I think it was about 90, I, you know, I was, the things like the, I was a massive fan of the jam in from probably from about 78, 79, something like that. Um, but then really from about 1980, I started listening to John Peel, buying the NME um and going to to gigs properly so that that was really the period and, and um you know there were good record shops near us in colchester and in chance with their parrot records which was a really good in, independent and so it was a combination of those things really nme peel and the record shops and and i i remember from about the age of 15 being into i guess from about 1980 being into the sort of stuff you'd hear on Peel, really. So, you know, some of the stuff Ian mentioned, the, you know, the au pairs, Gang of Four, a lot of the stuff, the Rough Trades records, um, um, Echo and the Bunny Men, The Cure. Uh, so what was your, yeah. your first musical adventure was called The Primary Industry, I believe. It yes. Was. So what, yes. what sort of drove you to be in, in forming a music, you know, band? 
Because in a way, you don't sound like you'd been like, my God, from the age of, some people I've interviewed, like from the age of four, I started playing guitar and then I was in a band <laughs> from the age of 14 and I was just the young kid in town that, and da-da-da-da-da. But you, you, know, you, you seem quite relaxed, actually, <laughs> on the musical kind of journey. Yeah, Ian, do you want to... Uh... I'm, uh, I'm trying to remember how we kind of... Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think we, I think we both had circles of friends that had different instruments so I think we were trying out you know um yeah, you know kind of playing live uh, together and um uh, I think it was almost like a, a local super group um a primary industry not that there was uh, anything particularly super about it but um you know, where we started but it, it was yeah, a bit kind of friends in a you know in, in a small village you know um uh, you know finding yeah. something to do and uh, you know an outlet and and trying things out yeah, and it, it was totally driven by the, um, you know, the the, the punk or post punk, you know, DIY ethic. That's what it was all about. You know, we were buying local fanzines and seeing local bands and thinking, you know, we we could have a go at this. I think the, the first musical venture I had was prior to Ian and I both had little bands, local bands before a primary industry, and the group that I was in had my brother and a couple of other uh, local friends, and we were doing. Joy Division covers, things like that. Right. Not doing any gigs, but just playing at home with a drum machine. You know, playing. I remember we did. We used to do a cover of. Um, uh, do you remember Ski Patrol? A, a track called Agent Orange, just because it was easy to play. You know, <laughs> um, it was something we'd heard on John Peel. Yeah, they were on. They were on um, Malicious Damage, Killing Jokes label. Right. And it's very, very simple. Really, very, very simple thing that you could play. You know, without any real musical uh, background at all. And uh, and similarly, the, the, the Joy Division, I remember we used to do a cover of uh, She's Lost Control, you know. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so this is at the age of about 15 or whatever, I suppose. Um, yes. Ian had a, a band up the road as well. And then we, I think we kind of used to share rehearsals or something like that. And the, the band kind of crystallised out of that, I suppose. Yes, because at that stage, then there was that moment we heard a guy called Gerald and then Peel was playing all that Chicago house music. And I remember buying on the NME, there was Go-Go. Remember Go-Go with Trouble Funk and people like that? You know, those kind of bands. So were you kind of getting drawn into that world that was kind of the dance scene, ambient scene, and, and the orb suddenly appeared with, you know, little fluffy clouds and, and stuff like that, which was always one of those Peel moments, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think there was just so much kind of going on, you know, on, on all um, kind of fronts. There just seemed to be, you know, good music, you know, um, yeah, everywhere. And you, you mentioned those cassettes, you know, you'd put them on and there would be, you know, there'd be trouble from, there'd be something off one of those Miles Davis albums. There'd just be a whole mass of different things that, you know, you, you'd not heard before or thought of to listen. And all of it was sounding like it was at least pretty good. Some of it was excellent. And, uh, <laughs> It was really kind of eye-opening, I think. Yeah, I mean, you talk you talk about C eighty six, David. I, I mean, the C eight the C eighty one cassette was massively influential for me. Um, yeah. uh, you know, that had Robert Wyatt on there, Born Again Cretin, and Scritti Politti, the Sweetest Girl, Cabaret Voltaire, Orange Juice. Um, that th that actually that cassette was hugely influential for us, I think, because it just was a snapshot of all that stuff going on at the time. And um, and we were into all of that, you know, the postcard things, rough trade, factory. Um, so we, you know, so we sort of immersed ourselves 
so, and, and then later 4AD in that, you know, while we were doing a primary primary industry, which which existed from about 83 until 87, something like that. Right. Um, which was quite a kind of transitory period for the music, I think, at that time, because the technology was starting to change. You know, we were we were a tradition, a straightforward band. We had, I don't think, we didn't really even use keyboards that much, I don't think, did we? And it was, you know, it was a straightforward sort of lineup plus p- percussion and a little bit of rose piano, that kind of thing. But it was, um, uh, you know, the technology gradually came in and we started using drum machines in the studio and synths in the studio um, and and started using the studio as an, as an instrument, you know, dubbing things and working with a, a very good... Uh, co-producer engineer as well who taught us a lot um and it was quite a weird period where the te- technology was changing and, and rudimentary sampling was starting to come in in the mid mid 80s so we were using that in the studio as well with a primary industry so but we were very much coming from the background of being fans of the sort of post-punk slightly industrial sort of scene of Cabaret Voltaire. Throwing on, on New Sound as well. All the on, new sound. on New Sound was a very big thing for us, yeah. yeah. 23 Skidoo and all that all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah Tackhead and Mark Stewart and Adrian mm. Sherwood, all, all that stuff as well. So there's a lot of... It, it wasn't very... Uh, at that point, I don't think things had sort of crystallised into very strong scenes. You know, there were lab- people would go and see The Smiths one day and go and see on you sound roadshow or whatever the next. Um, And it wasn't really until uh, the dance music, you know, the house and acid house kicked in. I I think that it started to then stratify into all these um, myriad sort of scenes. I think it was a bit more of a melting pot. Yeah, well, because I realised there was a bit of a change because 87 was the year the Smiths broke and and finished. And and there was kind of definitely a bit of an indie scene and jingly jangly guitars. Then the Smiths finished and that felt like, the you know, because every scene has a bit of a honeymoon phase and then there's the and then it falls apart. Um, And ecstasy came along sort of around that time. And suddenly, you know, the, the next wave of teenagers wanted their own sound. They were no longer interested in those bands from the earlier 80s period. And and suddenly there was that kind of Happy Mondays, Stone Roses, uh, Primal Scream. You know, there was suddenly that that kind of excitement of the dance movement, wasn't there, which kind of kicked in. And then if that didn't sort of finish a lot of those indie bands off, grunge definitely finished them off. So you you were sort of definitely kind of straddling, a di- you slightly jumped ship on the band front, didn't you, to the, to the, to the dance scene, which, uh, or the ambient scene, which must have been kind of lucky looking back on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what a kind of a jump there was, because obviously it's, you know, week by week, month by month, and it gradually kind of changes. It's just the releases obviously kind of define moments of time and, uh, you know, with the use of kind of technology and the music that we're kind of listening to ourselves, you know, things do kind of gradually change. But, you know, there probably does seem to be you know, quite a difference between a number of the, uh, you know, earlier releases. But uh, I think that's, uh, that's to be expected, you know, that it was, you know, there was a lot going on. Yes. Well, I, I remember the Orb suddenly headlining Glastonbury in one of those early festivals and the whole site just felt like it was going towards this field to see the Orb, which was like, you know, things <laughs> had definitely changed. There was no longer that thing of Van Morrison and Bob Dylan and, you know, Hawkwind. People didn't care, did they? They just wanted yeah. the next thing. 
I think it was, I mean, to a degree for us, it was it was the technology that tipped us over from one, from one sort of incarnation into another. You know, we were a more of a straightforward band when we were doing the primary, primary industry stuff. Uh, we had a bit of a layoff for a year or so where I was working abroad. And um, and when I came back, I think we then started using, I think that's my memory of it anyway, but we, we, we then really started using the sampler as the, the kind of writing, our main writing tool really in the music. Um, I think the other members of the group drifted away for, for you know, for one reason or another studying or, or whatever. And uh, it just ended up with Ian and I really, and, and I think at that point we started concentrating on the machines and, um, you know, getting an Atari computer and sequencing and that kind of thing, really. So, uh, um, and the, the scene we were in, we weren't really in a scene, but the labels we were on at that time with the primary industry, they kind of carried us through it a little bit because the label we were on had, we were on a label called Sweatbox um, that had people like, um, uh, in the nursery and um, Meet, Beat, Meet Beat Manifesto. Right. Who we were, we were sort of affiliated to through um, one of our, our, our sort of partners who we work with a lot. Um, and so that was all sort of transitioning through into, become, into electronic music, into, into being a dance label of sorts as well, I think. Um, and people involved in that then started getting involved in clubs and we were associated with with the Brain Club in um, in Soho for, for a while. We were on the label that was associated that was linked to the Brain Club, a label called Brainiac, um, which was run by Sean uh, McCluskey and Mark Wigan, and and um, so that was kind of our introduction to to the sort of house music side of things, really. Yes, wasn't uh, which is about nineteen uh, around nineteen ninety. Yes. So when did you, you, you sort of become the band? You know, when did you say this is going to be the band and we are it and sort of getting the record, you know, the record deal and the first album? How did that develop? As Ultramarine? Yes. Well, the first Ultramarine album was still, you know, in kind of spare time and, uh, you know, the, the, you know the, your primary industry, you know, all that was, you know, rehearsals at kind of uh, weekends and you know now a bit of holiday to record the album uh ultramarine you know carried on you know in the same fashion after a break and you know yes we did acquire bits of kind of machinery but it was only after um every man was a star uh was released um certainly for the first time that we were able to um you know become professional and for it to be our uh, you know our, our livelihoods yes was it a surprise when it hit such a sort of got such critical reaction? I mean, it was a. I mean, I mean the the time I remember very very fondly the uh, when it was when we were still both working and we were seemingly having to do kind of interviews um, almost every kind of evening in um, you know in in the West End and various pubs in kind of Soho and yeah there was kind of you know it was kind of building up and every magazine and. You know, newspaper that seemed to come out, there would be something about, you know, one of those first kind of Brainiac singles and previews of the albums. I and mean, it was very, very exciting. I don't think we ever thought that it would actually become something that we could do full time. No. So when, you know, a couple of big labels started sniffing around, it seemed like, you know, there, there was a, a real chance. Yes. And and you were on Rough Trade, you became part of the Rough Trade stable. 
Yeah, there was a deal yeah. really kind of brokered by um, uh, Jeff Travis, whereby we were part of his Blanco y Negro imprint, which was a Warner's um, imprint. And as part of that, Everyman Was a Star was re-released in an expanded form on Rough Trade. Mm. Yeah, I'd actually forgotten that's that's what, why that happened. Yeah, yeah, it had a b- bit of a weird history actually around that record anyway. But but prior to that, with the first Ultramarine album um, was Folk, which was sort of a, almost done as an it wasn't done as a primary industry record, but it was mainly the same group that of people that were involved in a primary industry. Um, that we that was we did for for Crep, for late district crepuscule released our first record first album, um, so that that kind of bridged uh, the previous band and 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 sort of the you know the the later ultramarine things in a way in that it was quite a kind of electro acoustic album it was quite a it was a it had it's got a band sound to it but it's using the studio quite a lot. Um, as well, into, you know, as, as an instrument, and um, it's got percussion loops in there, hasn't it? You know, not only played percussion, but actually, um, you know, loop drum beats was the first time. Yeah, really. But that did, we didn't really have any profile from that record at all. It was on. It was released on Crepuscule. It didn't really, which at the time I suppose was, um, you know, it was almost like it would be available on import in the UK kind of yeah. thing, even though it was only released in Belgium, you know, it, had, <laughs> it you know, it had a, it was a sort of a, um, you know, we didn't really get noticed over here at all for, for that record. Yes. I don't think I, I can't, I can't even remember it being reviewed in the UK no. music press or anything like that. Um, that, that came out and we recorded that in 1989. That came out in 1990. That's being reissued actually next month. Um, right. We've got a final reissue of that coming up, which we're looking forward to. Um, and that was yeah. I mean, I'm quite proud of that record, but it it um it kind of um it sort of leads into what most people have, have heard of us. The, you know, as our starting point being every man and woman is a star. Yes, well, absolutely. Did you feel part of a scene at that stage when that started to develop? The, not the just the first, but the second album. Did you sort of suddenly feel that you were part of a, a bit of a zeitgeist moment? I think it did feel that to, um, to an so, extent, yeah. yeah, a little bit. I mean, we were never really fully immersed in any one scene, really, because we because we'd had this kind of previous existence. It wasn't like we were a couple of, you know, fresh eighteen-year-olds with a drum machine and a three hundred three. We'd had this kind of background in, you know, in the in the early eighties and in in all of that scene, and uh, you know, this sort of touching on the industrial scene and the factory records thing and all that kind of stuff, which by then seemed an, an age ago, I think it seemed like totally redundant music in a way. No one was interested in factory records. I mean, apart from things like the, you know, obviously at the happy Mondays and all that sort of stuff, but it seemed, it seemed very quickly that all that stuff kind of receded really. So, but we had, we had that sort of background, but um we weren't heavily part of a scene in that we were playing raves every weekend or anything like that. Um, we were connected through the, through the brain, which was a really great club, you know, it was, which was, you know, a, a, which was a uh, open every day of the week, actually, I think the brain wasn't it. It was in Wardour mm-hmm. street. So it was a kind of members club kind of thing, which did live music. So people like Orbital played there and, um, 
you know some of the some of the acts around then but um um i don't think yeah so there, there was a scene in the through that label but yeah. i don't think we were we weren't like heavily part of a scene we didn't build up a huge group of associates at that time djs and other groups particularly yeah we quite we were a little bit isolated i think because then you do a big tour of america don't you the following year was it 92 you sort of toured uh yes with uh meat beat manifesto and orbital yeah so um djs from the uh limelight club in uh in new york but, i mean that was a fantastic experience it was um how did you cope? Because 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 a lot most of the bands I've ever interviewed they they normally have a five year narrative and they split after the second or third album. But one of the things that always finishes them off is when they say, "Oh, we toured America and then came back and broke up." So how did you, you know, tour? How did your American experience feel? I think we enjoyed every moment of it. You know, it was, uh, you know, it, it started off quite strangely where. Um, Meat Beat were having a problem um, with uh, their visas. So we were kind of marooned in New York for the best part of a week, um, having to kind of kill time. So uh, you know, it was a fantastic start um, for that, which did have a knock-on effect that the kind of second half of the tour, there was pretty, there was no real time off. It was back-to-back. You know, you'd kind of uh, arrive at a venue kind of late, three or four in the afternoon, leave kind of two or three o'clock at night, turn up at the next one, three or four in the afternoon it became you know a, a very enjoyable um, repetitive slog yes. so, no, we enjoyed the playing live you know the technology kind of held uh, up for us there was great um, you know great response we already knew um, Paul and Phil from Orbital and Jack and Johnny from um, Meat Beat so you know, we you know, we were on a friendly basis with all of them and uh, the crew was fantastic um, you know Included some people who are you know friends to until this day. So um, you know it was a it was a really really good kind of spirit. Yes, well, yeah. Because quite... we we we'd had a bit of connection with uh, John and um, and Jack uh, Johnny and Jack from from Meat Beat right right the way back. They were on the same label. They were on the sweat. They had a band called Perennial Divide, which was on Sweatbox, which was the label that Primary Primary Industry were on. So we kind of knew them from quite a long way back I think we might have played with them once at that time in the mid 80s so um yeah it was fantastic and the orbital lads are really great as well and um I think both of them had toured in America before as well so they had a an American crew and America you know so they sort of knew the ropes a little bit as well which was you know which was really good for us um and it was the first time really that we we Ian and I sort of built a kind of expanded band, which has always been a sort of theme, really, of what we've done with Ultramarine. Um, it's just, you know, the band is the two of us, but we've always, for pretty much, for most of the projects we've done, we've expanded it in the studio and or live, you know, and and um, we did that for, I mean, for, for Every Man and Woman is a Star, there are quite a few people playing on the record. And, and when we did that tour, the American tour, we... We did that. We played that as a, a as a four piece. So we took a, a uh, was it a four piece? Yeah, we took a drummer and a um, keyboard player with us, and I played bass. And then we had all the machines and all the synths and stuff as well. Um, so we, that was that. We so we that I absolutely loved that playing every night. It was fantastic and playing as a band, so that it was different every night. It wasn't just some sort of sequenced kind of thing. 
Um, and that gave us a real taste for that. And that's something we we all, we carried on really to 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 one you know, one degree or another. And we still that we still do that today when we play live as well when we can. We expand the expand it and. Um, so and, when you uh, so when you were having to sort of bring you know a follow up album, which is often quite hard going because there isn't often much time to to sort of pause and think what's happening next. Did that process and creative kind of journey did that work quite well for you? Sort of um, coming up with was it United Kingdoms was the next album? Uh, hmm. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I, I don't yeah. remember there being any big hiatus or, you know, creative block. I think, you know, we were raring to go because we were doing it full time now. You know, it's what we wanted to, uh, we, we made full use of the time. I'm, I'm pretty sure that we had some of the starting points for a couple of the um, United Kingdom's tracks before we went off on that tour. You know, anyway, so I think the, uh, you know, the writing had already been, had already begun. Yes. Yeah, well, as soon actually, I mean, as soon as we in the the summer of '92, we got signed to um, to Warner's to, to the Blanco and Negro through Jeff Travis, and we and we and we got a, a publishing deal with EMI, so that enabled us to leave our jobs. Um, so every man and woman is a star had already come out twice, actually, because it had been on another label prior to that. In fact, we originally recorded it for they did do Crepuscule, and they didn't want to release it in the end. Um, we recorded it. For, for this label brain sorry i'm going too much detail here but anyway we so that had already come out and um in the summer of 92 to celebrate the fact that we had left our jobs we the first thing we did was to go on holiday to um mallorca we went to Dea in mallorca which is that we noticed the famous kind of um it was an artist colony robert graves lived there and it was the home to a lot of the Canterbury uh, scene musicians, um, you know, Robert Wyatt lived there Kev, uh, for a bit or had connections to Robert Graves and Kevin Ayres lived there for a long time. So we, we, I think we'd already sort of conceived the idea maybe of that album or we were thinking about that album, of it being a sort of, I mean, this sounds terrible, but it's <laughs> sort of a concept of being a sort of tribute to the, Canterbury scene, you know, uh, Caravan, Soft Machine, Kevin yeah. Ayers, Robert Wine, and so on. And so we, for some reason, we thought the first thing we needed to do was to go and find Kevin Ayers, who lived in a little stone cottage in Dea. Um, so we went, and we didn't have any way of contacting him. We thought we knew he lived there. Um, so we went there and tried to find Kevin Ayers. And I think while we were there, uh, we we met Lady June while we were there, who was another sort of peripheral character in the, um, who was a gong associated member of the um, Canterbury scene as well. And, and I think when we were there, I think we sort of hatched the kind of concept for the album while we were there, really. Mm. And um, I remember we were listening to, we were in, in the hire car, we were listening to John Barleycorn, uh, the traffic song. Right. And, you know, we were thinking, okay, they've used this, um, uh, you know, they've taken the words from an existing folk ballad. Yes. And have repurposed it. And I think we thought, why don't we do that? And I think we came up with a short list of people who who might be, you know, a good foil for that. And Robert, Robert Wyatt was on that list and I'm not... I don't know who else would have been yeah, on here. List of one, I think. <laughs> yeah, maybe Kevin Ayers, probably. But um, yeah, and I remember hatching. I think we sort of hatched the kind of 
concept for the record then, really. So I think we had quite a lot to get our teeth into when we our teeth into when we got back. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And were, were you always quite? A, is it called pa- pastoral? Pastoral? Pastoral sort of band? Because there was kind of a quite a organic. Arcadia quality in the band, isn't there, at times, underneath it all? And it's funny you mentioned the Canterbury scene, because I've always thought of them as being that quality, you know, sort of remembering the romantic side of the English countryside and stuff like that. You know, you know I, mean, I, I don't think that kind of really existed as a uh, narrative um, kind of back then. You know, there was no, that, that wasn't really, I mean, that pastoral techno uh, your description, I think, was the yeah, I, think, I remember things like agrarian groove and all these kind of <laughs> phrases that you kind of, you know, you got almost kind of cringed at. But kind of looking back on it, you know, um, yeah, you know, they were they were onto something. It just wasn't really, um, you know, it didn't form part of the majority of the kind of critique of music kind of at that time. You know, it wasn't. A, a yeah, well, I mean, it has become now with some really great kind of books that come out and uh, yeah, some great music as well. But. Uh, for us, it was always important, you know, the uh, where we're from, and um, you know that obviously kind of seeps into uh, into the music uh, in different ways. But I, I, yeah, but I think there was, you know, I think we in the mid '80s we were listening to um, the Girotti Column and uh, mm. and Brian and Eno and the Ambient series and all that, and I think that you know that's we've always carried that with us, um, <laughs> and there's a big pastoral element I think to a lot of that. To, to a lot of that music and I think yes I think that's sometimes forgotten because that, some of those uh, prog bands which are really awkward to listen to though you know critically acclaimed like is it the third ear band and people like the incredible string band who who brought in lots of stuff were you starting to sort of gravitate or get curious with some of that we may have listened to an incredible string band uh, record or two along the way I guess yeah I'm a massive fan of the incredible string band yeah I mean, but we but we only got in, discovered all that stuff through sampling, you know, in the, um, you know, I was, I would have been oblivious to all of that really until we started digging in record shops in the early nineties, you know, you know, looking for samples. That's how we, that's how we discovered Kevin Ayers and, uh, Robin and Whitney. Gong and incredible string band and a lot of that, that stuff, some of which seeps into every man and every man and woman is a star and that, and then, we sort of focused on on that more pastoral side of it for uh, for United Kingdoms, really. But it was it was you know it was actually quite fresh to us all that music. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, it wasn't that we'd had older brothers and sisters who no. you know introduced it to uh, to us um, you know ten years prior to that. It was it was new to us really. Yeah, I mean, I, I still I still remember listening to um, uh, whatever she brings, we sing the Kevin Ayers album for the first time with Ian. You know we were we had a bunch of records we bought from record and tape exchange going through them stuck that on and couldn't believe it you know the the sound of it uh the organic kind of richness of it the experimental element of it tape loops and all that kind of thing and uh we were amazed really that this stuff existed and uh so we got very heavily into all that really for a while yeah. And, and well, I still still listen to it so yeah your pastoral love that's really interesting because um Yes, I come from the countryside, so it's kind of one of those experiences that often, yes, people don't understand what the, the love of folk music is all about, do they really? It has, you know, there is something, you know, you, you can't have that New York no-wave scene of DNA 
and and sort of really yeah. you couldn't have made that if you grew up in a village yes in yeah. Suffolk no. you know there, there's just no <laughs> way that you could make those kind of like because Brian Eno you mentioned but he put together a compilation in uh, didn't he of New York no wave bands from 1979 to 1980 or something and they're all really scratchy like is it James Chance and the Contour yeah yeah James all Chance, that yeah. you know you listen yeah. to it it's quite an ins it's quite hard going sometimes I find it but you couldn't have made that by you know being in a village looking at cows in the field no, absolutely. No, it's very urban. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So how was, because then you did work with some of these characters, so you must have felt quite excited. Did you work with Robert Wyatt? Yes, yes, we did. I mean, uh, Robert was uh, recording for Rough Trade at the time, so, you know, um, we had, um, we were able to have an introduction via uh, Jeff Travis, and um, you know, we were able to you know, outline our plans and, and share the proposals for the kind of folk songs that we wanted to to use. And, um, you know, it was a great experience kind of working with, with Robert, you know, was, um, you know, even before we'd actually, before we met in the studio to do the, the recordings, um, he would do some kind of demos. Um, so we had kind of a trade, trading backs and forwards of cassettes. You know, we would send, um, you know, an outline of... Uh, you know, the music on a loop and a cassette and no doubt a properly kind of sealed jiffy bag. And we would get some kind of a scrappy envelope with, um, you know, made out of a, a cornflakes box with loads of kind of leaflets and stickers falling out. And this kind of cassette that suddenly had, um, you know, Robert's voice on it. You know, it was a wonderful kind of experience then, you know, putting that in the player and uh, and hearing it come to life. So it yes. was a, it was a great experience from beginning to end with Robert. Did you feel a bit like this was a, a kind of a surreal trip that you were both on at the time? Did it feel a bit like, because often most people in a band, it doesn't go, it doesn't really take off that much, does it? But then one, you know, like, I don't know, percentage wise, there's a few that do take off and you get sort of, you know, the record label, you get the record releases, the tours, then you work with other people and suddenly you're in the studio with, like something you think, my God, that's a, that person's a hero, and now we're working with them. So, how did you kind of navigate and cope with that that kind of change? Yeah, that's a good question. I um, I think it was. It, we I think we were we were certainly aware of um, uh, you know things going well, and I don't think we took anything really for granted at, at all because we were you know we weren't. You know, we, we'd already been working in, you know, in normal jobs and we were in our mid, you know, we were sort of 26 or something like that, I think, around that time, mid-20s. So, you know, and probably around the time we went to America for the first time. So we were, you know, we, we were certainly grateful for it. I don't think we just took it all as being, this is the way, you know, this is the way it normally is. You know, we, we were, I think it was very exciting for us around, Every man and woman is a star. Just the reaction that got, um, but I think quite quickly it becomes, it does become a bit of a job quite quickly. Really, you know, we had management. Um, you know, we were signed to a major label, um, so there are aspects of that which we were never very comfortable with. And we worked uh, regular hours as well, didn't we? I mean, we worked, you know, not quite nine to five, but you know, we, we did work on every weekday right 
it was kind of yeah serious and we're at the same time yeah. you know especially as the 90s progressed you know there was the kind of the, the brit pop movement that sort of appeared in cool britannia and you know we'd had all those like dr Didge, you know banco de gaia the apex twin or you know there was this huge wave of dance music and raving and ecstasy and the whole sort of tr the travelers and and all that kind of movement did you you know how was that kind of affecting you or sort of not affecting you and sort of influencing you or not i think it, it definitely fed into what we were doing i think certainly around it, every man and woman is a star it was uh it felt to to me even you know and in, in, even in retrospect it, it felt like quite a magical time really where there was a lot of stuff coming together um, you know, even to the extent that, you know, the mu I think the music press was quite good. You had things like ID magazine starting up and it, I don't know, it, it did seem a very sort of positive time, I think. And uh, I think we certainly felt that and Every Man and Woman is a Star is a, is a, a sort of celebratory kind of record, really. Yeah. Um, you know, it's relentlessly kind of positive and, um, yeah, so I, I think we took a lot from that. I don't, as you were saying earlier, we weren't really ever directly in, really involved in the kind of club scene really. So it wasn't really drug fueled at all. Um, but it was almost like the sort of, <laughs> you know, the sort of spin off from that was kind of affecting our, our sort of attitude towards things. Yes. Um, and, how, and and one of the big things that a lot of bands have, which is a huge plus, is a John Peel session. And you managed to get one in was it ninety two? Was it a John Peel? Did you get a John we did Peel? A, we did a couple of Peel sessions. Oh. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, we did one in ninety two and one in ninety three. So we did sort of one each related to those two albums, really. And I think we did some other BBC sessions as well, like Mark Goodyear and. Um, Mark Radcliffe as well. Yeah, yeah. And what was your John Peel experience like? I know you don't get to meet John Peel, but you know most people <laughs> most people work with Dale. Griffin. Actually, we did get to meet John Peel because we we played at a John Peel Road Show in as a primary industry actually in Chelmsford in the mid eighties. We we supported uh, Night Sareb. Do I don't know if you remember them. They're still around. Yes. Um, oh God, they were. Yeah, we played with Night Sareb and, and and John Peel DJing at the uh, Chancellor Hall in about 85 i think 86 something like that right um, so he was aware he played he played our records as a primary industry actually he played our first single yes um in 1984 so we sort of had a bit of that but, um i don't know if you, yeah. you want to talk about the john peel sessions here yeah i mean i don't remember that much about <laughs> incredibly kind of you know you know professional um studio people you're working with and uh you know it's um yeah, you know, and you know, it was more of a, I seem to remember it was an automated kind of desk, which was a bit of a challenge for us because the first time we'd done that and kind of finding out that a lot of people doing electronic music in that day were just kind of turning up with things that were pretty much just played straight back off that and you know, um, putting them out as sessions. So we kind of made it a bit more difficult for ourselves and have lots of kind of live playing, but um, the results sound really good. I mean, they, were, they came out you know, a few years ago um, on the re-release of Everyman Wants a Star, and uh, yeah, they, they kind of still kind of hold up. The um, the one that hasn't been kind of released officially, um, there are a couple of gems on there where it's got uh, um, you know two um, sax players playing at the same time, which is uh, which is really nice. Was that Lowell Co Coxwell? 
Um, no, not on that yeah. session. We, we did do some work with Lord Coxhill. Um, but no, that, that wasn't on a Peel session. Right. Yeah. The Peel session was Jimmy Hastings. Um, uh, the, 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 the second Peel session we did, uh, which was around the time of United Kingdoms, um, uh, had Jimmy Hastings on it, who was on the album as well. And Jimmy was um, a sort of a satellite member of uh, Caravan and Hatfield in the North. Um, uh, he's, the, I think, the brother of Pie Hastings. Um, yes who was in Caravan, wasn't he, I think? And, uh, yeah, J Jimmy was a, uh, is a fantastic musician. Um, he played flute and sax or clarinet, I think, on, 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 the, on the album. And uh, I think we did that second Peel session as a seven-piece band, actually. Yeah, it was a big band, yeah. So it was kind of quite a big group. And we were quite prepared for that one because by that time we'd been playing live quite a bit with expanded bands as well. Yeah. I think the first Peel session we did, we were a bit kind of, a little bit raw, but... Um, that second one we, we we were quite into it by then i think and we we i think we sounded quite good live at that point because mm -hmm. we you know we had a drummer and keyboard player there was an accordion player on that on that session as well two sax players so it was it was quite a big orchestra sort of semi-orchestrated sound actually did you get slightly influenced or did you ever come across bands like Blozabella, who were this multi-instrumental kind of folk combo with Paul James and there was a guy who played hurdy-gurdy and they brought in lots of different instruments but they made a very amazing sort of rhythmic sound sometimes with a bit of a drone I suppose that was with hurdy-gurdy did, did sort of were you coming in were you were you getting more influenced by that kind of folk scene were you, was your curiosity quite strong at that point I don't not for the contemporary folk scene I don't think no no I think we were kind of we uh, we had been listening to things like Incredible String Band and much more of the sort of psychedelic type folk stuff, you know, sort of Harvest Label and, you know, Shirley Collins and uh, that kind of thing, but not, no, not the contemporary stuff, really. Right, yes. So when you came to make your, the, the album, was it in 98, which was a user's guide, because that was a kind of, when you did that, there's kind of quite a gap. Was Was there a sort of feeling that that was going to be, your last album or was there a sort of a sense that something had changed with the band? Well, I, I mean, a lot had changed um, by then. We'd, after United Kingdoms, we did the, the Bel Air kind of album, which was a kind of big, sprawling kind of beast of, you know, loads and loads of different tracks, loads of parts of tracks. And, um, you know, we were really pleased with how that went, the vocal collaborations with Puka um, that, you know, we, we were very, very happy with. I think it was clear that, um, you know, there was a, a falling out of love in terms of uh, relationship with Warners. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there weren't many hits on those records. And, um, you know, it was, well, we had to go through the process of recording a final album, um, you know, to see whether Warners would uh, want to kind of renew the contract uh, or not based on that album. Um, they chose not to. So we then... You know, we got a, a different deal with uh, you know a smaller label, New Electronica, and yeah, I you know that's where we made a user's guide. So it's far more inward looking. It's kind of you know being in the studio. There aren't the collaborations on that one. That's very much kind of us uh, and the machines. You know, and um, I think it, you know we did probably expect that to be the last thing that we'd be doing. You know, at least for you know a while. Yes, and did you? I mean. 
at that time, I always love these things, but you know, we'd had the John Major, we'd had Thatcher in the major years, then, you know, you know, Team Tony in 97. Did, did any of that kind of influence you at all? You know, sort of the political landscape, because obviously, Cool Britannia, we look back now and think, we took it all for granted, but no, Jesus. Um, <laughs> But it the, was a more optimistic time, wasn't it? It wasn't optimistic. Did, did you feel like, you know, there was a kind of a period that you just wanted to end on a high, or was it just that you were getting tired of being in music? Um, There's just a, you know, a reality that you need to, um, you know, pay the rent. So, um, you know, when the money was drying up and, you know, we used to get, um, you know, remix work that used to come in that would sort of like tie us over for, you know, another few weeks or another month or whatever. So, you know, that was, it, it was pretty clear for a while, I think that, you know, we would have to concentrate on something else for a while. And, you know, we had to kind of give up the studio um, that we'd been working in for, you know, quite a while. Is that, is that quite a big kind of, it sounds like a big, huge thing, but is it a big thing to sort of when that realization, because actually when you're not in music in that way, you expect it to be quite different. But then when you hear this, you think, I blimey, I didn't realise it was going to be quite so hand to mouth. I thought it would have been like quite a lot easier. I guess you might have done when you were younger as well. I think, oh, being in a band, that's marvellous. And then you just live off the money, but it doesn't work like that, does it? Uh, no, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think one issue we had is that we found it very difficult um, doing stuff that we didn't want to do. Um and we didn't ever do anything we didn't want to do, but there were, but it kind of, we came close to it a couple of times. And this, you know, being asked to do stuff by the label or to do certain tours and things like that. And I think Ian and I both just had it in our, a total reaction to that in our, uh, in our gut. You know, we just couldn't bring ourselves to do anything we didn't want to do because we knew that anything we did, especially recorded, is there forever, you know, and, you, and to put something out that you're not happy with 100%, we, I don't think we could bring ourselves to do that. And we had a bit of an experience with that on a particular project we, we were working on for a long time called Him, um, which did come out, which is a cover of a Kevin Ayres song, which became a really sprawling sort of messy project that by the end of, end of which we hated. And um, that was our kind of sort of experience of not being comfortable with being on a major label and I think after that we just felt if you know we would much rather just bail out and not do it at all than to to do it on someone else's terms or in a way that we we weren't comfortable with really um so the United so the uh user's guide album really was it was you know quite pure sort of purest record for us in a way it was just us no real instruments on it so it was purely electronic uh i think um and no collaborators on it and it and we spent a long time on it as well we like worked on it for a year almost full time and had our own studio when we were doing it and i think you can sort of hear that and it's got a very kind of designed sort of sound, but it, we did, we sort of knew that it was the last, we felt it was the last thing we were going to, we were going to do really. So it was a, yeah. a bit of an, uh, it was a bit of a sort of F you to people who had not, who we felt had kind of let us down a little bit. I think. Um, I don't think we felt we got any real guidance at times as to what, you know, no one really 
you know, in contradiction to what I've just said about not, <laughs> not you know, about only wanting to do our own thing. I, I think on the other hand, we didn't actually get a lot of guidance or, you know, sort of advice really. Yes. Um, and I think there are things we could have done probably that would have prolonged, you know, it or made, or made our careers differently. But I th- although in retrospect, I'm kind of glad how it works out, but uh, yeah. I think there there were things we could have done. I think I think we had, you know, we we sort of we knew what we were doing. I think, and um, I think it was a shame that we had to sort of ditch it for such a long long period of time. Really, yeah. But we were so, we, we were relieved to stop doing it at the time because we were so fed up with all the business stuff. It was a relief to go back to, to day jobs. But that, yeah. That's how I remember it. You know, I don't know about you. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And did you have a moment where you both sat down and said, how do you sort of finish kind of a band project? Do you, do you have to sort of sign something off or do you have to just, <laughs> do, you, do you just kind of give your P45 or just go, that's it? You know, there must be some sort of a few kind of things that, that have to be tidied up, I guess. Or can you it's just go, good, that's it? I can't, I, see what, that's a good question. I can't really remember um, much about that period, really. I, th- I think it sort of, you know, it gradually kind of um, fades out the amount of things that you're doing. Um, you know, we had to, um, you know, we were passing the studio on to, um, you know, some people that we kind of knew. And, you know, so it was a bit of interaction with them. There was no doubt some accounts that needed sorting out. And then it just become less and less that you kind of need to do on a uh, on a weekly basis. And there's no more. Um, you know, there was no more work coming in and we weren't under contract uh, to anyone. So it effectively just stops. Yeah, I think I think we'd stop playing live by then as well. Um, so we've been playing live a lot right the way through Ultramarine up until about sort of 96. But then we stopped playing, I think. Um, and I think also that kind of earlier on, we'd sort of rewritten that kind of... Um, period where the music press, the weekly music press, the NME and um, Melody Maker really supported um, the sort of live electronic scene. You know, I guess from about 92, 93 was the sort of start of that really, where people like Orbital, Aphex, um, or, you know, Orteca, um, all those sort of groups were doing things like Mega Dog and playing the kind of college circuit. You know, it wasn't really a club thing. And crossing over, so you're getting people like Aphex Twin and Orbital and so on on the front of the NME. And, um, you know, we played a live a lot around that period with a lot of those those people and um, had a big trip to Moscow with all of them as well. Um, and uh, that was a very sort of healthy kind of scene, really. So we were, we were doing, you know, we were playing at places like Sheffield, Leadmill and, you know, so-and-so Polytechnic and all that kind of thing. So there was a real circuit you yes. know, and a, and, a, and a means of um, of uh, doing things, you know, a sort of a framework for the whole thing. But I think that all completely went away, really, once drum and bass and jungle and all that kind of stuff came in, really, and the club scene sort of took over. And I think that pretty much blotted out a lot of those gigs, really. There were sort of things like, um, you know, the big chill and um, oscillate and one or two of those things still going. But I think a lot of that kind of bread and butter live work dried up for a lot of people doing electronic stuff around that time um and that was probably another sort of nail in our coffin really around then 
I so think. It's a weird one, isn't it? And, and also, I think we, we got very disillusioned with the music around that. So not, not our own music, but with the, the scene around that time. And I, I didn't, there wasn't, I didn't really, personally, I, there wasn't a lot that interested me, apart from drum and bass, um, I think, around that time, really. Uh, so we sort of drift, drifted off a little bit. Yes. And then, um, did, did, is it the case that you sort of would uh, fiddle around at home recording or did you just stop all that and just focus on your careers before you sort of kind of came back together in about 2011? I carried on after a while. I started doing a record label in 2002. I started, started doing a label called Real Soon, which we still use to release some of the Ultramarine stuff on actually. And I did about 25 releases on that label not 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 of my own music but main, mainly of other people's music but i did a few records on that label between about mainly active between about 2002 and 2009 did about we did about 25 releases on there um and that was really house music influenced really it was you know it was um uh i think after in and I started to stop the band for a while. I, I started buying a lot more dance vinyl, and uh, so that was sort of uh, you know driven by getting into people like Theo Parrish and Kenny Dixon, you know Moody Man, that kind of thing. Really, that sort of inspired me to do the label. Yes, and um, so that's kind of how I kept my hand in with it, really. And then, what happened to to sort of bring you back together? Well, the thing is, we were we were friends, so it was, it's not like we didn't see each other during this period or talk about music. I mean, I think it was probably after a number of, of kind of years we did start talking about, about, well, maybe we should do something. And we'd been going to see a lot of um, concerts. There, there were a lot of great shows put on, um, you know, in London. You know, some of the kind of um, you know, jazz and kind of Brazilian music and things, and we were. Yeah, we've been talking about something that you know maybe we could do things that were you know that were based around kind of live performance, you know, utilizing that more, you know, capturing you know elements of improvisation. So we kicked around those ideas for a kind of you know a, a few years, you know, meeting up occasionally to uh, to try things out, and I think that became um, you know a kind of working method that then got um, you know embedded that we'd you know utilized to actually do the uh, the next bits of recording so um yeah it, again it's it's not like it's suddenly um you know out of the blue you know we kind of met up and said right you know we've got to get the band back together you know it didn't didn't quite work like that it was very much you know standing around uh you know outside having a drink and uh you know the the, the conversation kind of moved into that area you know after you know did you ever have any sort of doubts thinking okay you woke up the next day after a few drinks and thinking I'm not sure. Perhaps that's a bad idea. Or did you? Was, or was it like actually it would be really nice? Yeah, it was funny. Well, it wasn't really on the agenda at all. Really, I, I did an album actually on my own in 2008. Um, so I was sort of still doing stuff, but it, but weirdly, it wasn't really on the agenda for us to do anything together. Um, but as, as Ian said, we you know, we, we met up pretty regularly. You know, we were meeting pretty regularly and going to concerts together. You know, mainly mainly jazz, I suppose, around that time. But also, I think, in that period, in the late 90s, we started get going to see people like Tortoise and, 
you know, lamb chop and, um, you know, a lot of the American yes. kind of, you know, what we call post-rock at the, at the time. So I think that probably was a bit of an inspiration, really, seeing some of that sort of stuff. And I think Tortoise in particular, we sort of saw parallels to what we were doing on folk, actually, right, you know, that yeah. first album. Um, uh, that, you know, the sort of the combination of the instrumentation and so on. So I suppose we, I, I don't think we were consciously thinking about it. It's always a long period of time with Tornado. It was like 12 years we didn't work together. Um, but we were, you know, we were seeing a lot of music and, um, you know, and buying and listening to a lot of music. Um, and I, I, But I think actually it was the technology again, you know, as it was with the sampler that, that kicked off Ultramarine, really. It was actually this, the realization that there was some software, not software, sort of. Uh, there was some technology coming up, coming along that could make for an interesting way of performing live. Really, yeah. Um, we'd become woefully um, out of touch in terms of the technology. The album that I did in two thousand and eight, I made it with a an Atari computer, recording it live to CD. I think. Um, which in those days would have been laughable, really, because everybody was already on Macs and using hard disk recording and stuff. Uh, I was still using stuff from the you know the late eighties still, and um, uh, I, so it took us a while. I think that was actually it was it was actually the technology. Was, I think we both started to look at things like Ableton and think, oh, you know, that actually looks quite interesting. We could, you know, uh, it could facilitate a, a new way of working, really. Um, so I think it was seeing all those live performances kind of reinforced the bit that we kind of thought we could definitely do better was the kind of the unfinished business, if you like. You know, there was something that, you know, whilst we did have some kind of great, um, you know, great shows and, you know, we made the best of uh, the technology and, you know, we had some really kind of good people, um, you know, playing live with us. There was just some bit of, you know, improvisation that was, held back with the technology um some kind of openness and kind of fluidity which i think some of the new tools look like they would kind of uh, support so kind of worth you know exploring a bit further so but again you know, it was kind of gradual and yeah. um do you do you feel like with the project now that it's you've got a very good sort of work life creative balance well, it would be nice if we'd had some more uh, concerts this year, obviously. But I think that would have been uh, that would have been uh, well, yeah. I mean, we had really nice. We had a quite a busy year. Um, we had more com- we had more gigs booked this year than we'd done since about nineteen ninety five or something like. That. <laughs> All of which were cancelled. But um, so I forgot what the question was there, David. Um, well, the balance, well, uh, you know, because because oh, yeah, yeah, a lot of people who were into bands, and that was their full time thing have got, you know, did, you know, life and all that home stuff and then have got into music game, but have kind of like got their sort of work home and then creative music side. So they've got that balance. Do you feel like that's kind of where you are more at at the moment? Yeah. I mean, I personally, I, I mean, it's the frustration generally is not having the time to, to work on the music because of, you know, life and jobs and so on. Um, so there's you know there's always that, but beyond that, I mean I I enjoy the way that Ian and I work together now. I think more more than ever in a way. I mean we had a great time when we were doing it full time. Some of the time we had a great time, and other other times it was hard, quite hard work, you know. But I think now 
I, I enjoy music more than I've ever done. I think there's more and more interesting, you know, the digger you deep, the more interesting it gets. And there's some amazing new stuff coming out all the time and being reissued and so on. So I feel more engaged with music than I ever have done really. And I think I value it more than ever and see, you know, and see what a, an incredible, um, you know, uh, I was going to say emotional support there for a minute, but (laughs) over the last six months it has been, but yeah, just, you know, for me, it's just endlessly kind of, you know, fascinating and beautiful and, and interesting. And, um, I think Ian and I have found a way of working that means we, you know, we, obviously we're not reliant on it, which is great. So we're kind of freed up by that. We found ways of continuing to make records, which has always been important for us. I think, I think that's the thing we've always felt that if we're not putting out records and I mean physical records and not digital releases, then it doesn't exist. It's not for me, it's not worth doing it. It has to be a, physical product yes um so you know we wouldn't have just been happy sitting around or doing pub gigs or whatever or something like that it has we have to make records that look that are coherent and are nicely produced and presented and all that kind of stuff that's very much a big part of it i think for us um and we found a way of being able to do that you know either doing it ourselves as we have done Recently, we put a few things out ourselves or doing, you know, the most recent record with Crepuscule again, who were the, our original label when we did Folk. You know, we've come back to them. So were those last five years, you know. Signals into space and meditations. Are, yeah. they, are they new? Is that new material? Yeah, completely new. All of that's, yeah, yeah. Blimey, yeah. you've been on a creative role, haven't you? Yeah, so we did, yeah. I mean, we did those two records together, really. You know, so it was a double album plus the sort of the sort of I'm not sure what you call meditations like sort of mini album but um yeah that's all new yes new stuff yeah yeah so just because because I know just time so if you were to if you could have said something to an 18 year old self what would you have kind of given them some advice with having sort of the experience that you've got and had over the last decades that's a that's a big one isn't it um there's a, a big responsibility i mean you you've got to you know you you've got to follow the kind of you know the musical kind of dream but you you know you've got to um be true to what it is that you're actually kind of um you know what, what you hold dear you know you can't let the uh um the business kind of twist you out of shape because it is like a big uh, business it is changing all the time though it's very very different uh industry now to um you know when we signed it in the 90s you know all those um you know music companies are finding new ways of kind of existing and you know they're probably even kind of more ruthless than, than they were before but it is a it's a fantastical fantastic um experience being able to produce music and share music with people and um you know i think it does help in you know this kind of complicated and quite brutal world to have something that is so kind of personal um that you can actually you know use to bring people together it's uh you know it's a big bad world out there so and um, the more people that are you know producing something that um you know of, of kind of value um you know helps with us kind of um you know to defend against that 
Yes, it's interesting because because um, I realise that with the passing of time, like twenty five to yeah twenty five years to thirty, people suddenly look back and really start to appreciate stuff a lot more. Have you found that with with your you know the first albums, people have done that, and you've started finding people who have discovered it for the first time or have gone back and said, "My God, this is actually we took it all a bit for granted, and now we just think." That's just an amazing piece of work. Well, you might have done it yourself. The fact that folk is getting reissued by a, a new label run by a couple of very young people is you know, a complete testament to that. Yeah. yeah, that's been a very nice experience working with these guys putting putting the folk reissues together because it, I think, you know, we'd sort of, you know, it's very easy to kind of just see the faults in in, in earlier things that you've done, whether it's music or anything else. And um so I think, you know, I think I've always really liked that record, but never, you know, not, uh, it's quite uncomfortable listening back to very old stuff, I find. Yes. Um, but I've, it's really interesting hearing it through through their ears and, and seeing how they've, they've thought of it commercially as well and how they want to place it, you know, within, uh, you know, in terms of, of, of how they pitch the record, you know. Um, and I can see that and I can see how it links up to other things um, other reissue stuff, you know, for, for example, and um, yeah, we've remastered it. Sounds a lot better, I think, as well. Uh, it's been, it's been, yeah, it's been really, really nice that uh, and and working with people who you know are in their mid twenties and yeah. uh, are seeing it as something completely fresh. You know, aside from all the baggage. That so, what would it. yeah? Sorry, what would you say to an eighteen-year-old self? You know, if you you know, Paul, because I realise you didn't. Yeah, I think it's. I think you know, you. It's. Yeah, you've got to try try to kind of. You mean in terms of making music? Well, just um, yeah, but also just you know, if someone could have you know before you walked on stage or gone in the studio, and obviously when you're 18, you know, you kind of need. I'm not saying you were, by the way, but sometimes you need a bit of sort of arrogance and a bit of swagger and a bit of confidence. But sometimes, you know, sometimes having a of a mentor somebody saying oh by the way I would just if I was you just pay attention to this part of life or try to appreciate it more you know those, those kind of things I just wondered what you would have what you know would have liked to have said to yourself or what you kind of could have said to somebody else starting out that you think yeah oh, actually yeah. I won't bore you but I will just say there's one thing that I've learned bass drum can't be loud enough <laughs> <laughs> well I mean, actually, I have been talking to someone or talking to the, the dad of someone recently who's in that sort of position, who's, who's doing some really interesting music and is at quite an early stage with it. And I mean, I, this is not a particularly philosophical answer, but I think actually getting physical stuff out, releases out there is, is one thing I would say. I think, um, and, and engaging, if you can, engaging with a, a commu- you know, a community, finding like-minded people, really, I think. Um, I think you know you can see the sort of music that comes through scenes, regardless of what of what that musical scene is. You know, I think scenes can really foster a kind of interesting, you know, collaboration between people and um, you know, ideas sparking off of each other and so on. And um, I think perhaps finding like-minded people is a, is a really good way of of, of starting in, in music or any sort of creative pursue really you know yes which well, I, I guess can... is kind of easier than ever to, to do or it should yeah. be in theory yeah um, the, the actual physical release thing is, is interesting though isn't it because 
that does mean that you have to edit what you do. You know, you do have to be, you know, it helps the quality control. You know, you, you can't just kind of release every, absolutely everything you do on physical product. You know, you do have to make selections. You do have to consider it a bit more. And I think that's a kind of a useful um, way of focusing. Um, exactly, yeah, that's it. Yeah, sort of self-editing and self-publishing or however you want to put it. I think that's it. That, that, I think that's why for me the... Um, uh, the, the physical product so so important that it's got to go through that kind of quality it's got to go through that quality control you know it's out there forever and um it's yeah it's it's a very sort of um rigorous way of kind of working i think yes well i guess i mean actually we're gonna have to be really brief we've got only two minutes but that was quite interesting in the previous i mean and i don't know if you could have, have had other experiences but I realized in the 80s there were those gatekeepers like you had John Peel you had the music papers and every yeah. little town and city or big city had venues you know so you could feed into that kind of community and when you're young and you're in that kind of zeitgeist moment shit we've only got a minute left um do you want to do you want to, to reach, finish why don't you send another link David we'll finish it off okay <laughs> sorry <laughs> so I just yeah. wondered I mean how do you find it now then decades later and being older sort of knowing how to access or how to sort of stay in touch with stuff well it's obviously far more difficult isn't it you have to put the work in it doesn't just sort of you you, you know it doesn't appear before you or and it's not part of what you do is sort of going going out and, and mixing with people you know you you have to uh you know search things out you know online like other people you know kind of read you know particular kind of websites and uh yeah, again, kind of, you know, make connections across the, you know, the different communities to actually uh, find out what's happening. You know, it's, uh, it, you know, you'd be completely isolated just kind of playing, uh, you know, old music if you if you didn't. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it kind of functions, functions in a similar sort of way, but it's much more kind of... Uh, sort of factionalised now, isn't it? I mean, in the, you know, in the, in the early 80s, you know, as you say, in in the uk you had these huge kind of entities didn't you john john peel um nme melody maker whatever sounds you know one or two monthlies maybe um um not even sure they had monthlies then but um yeah i mean they were very and plus the record labels actually of course um and it was you know it was much more difficult to to sort of break through all all of that was to get to get noticed you had to get to a certain level really didn't you but uh, i think now i mean in terms of buying music i, I would trust you know I, you know there are certain radio or internet djs or shows i would follow and you know people on social media and you know uh, online stores i suppose that's kind of where i would go to see what's coming out Right, but but then I suppose I'm only getting quite. I'm getting a very narrow view of it, really, because I'm sort of following certain. Yes, people you're not going to discover the Bundu boys, are you? By doing that, not going to discover the Bundu boys. <laughs> I might do, but um, so yeah, I suppose you just got to kind of make sure that those because you you know it's, it's endless, isn't it? No, um, I suppose you've got to try to engineer it in such a way that 
the places you are looking are going to hopefully hoover, hoover up as much interesting interesting stuff as possible. Is the way the way I kind of yeah. You've got to hope that they have been curated in some degree. Otherwise, you know, if you're relying just on um, you know kind of online uh, you know music stores, then obviously everything is fantastic. You know, so it's um, <laughs> it is very difficult to weave through all that. Yes, and what you were just saying earlier. Anno Dom, Dom and I, did you work with her, by the way? Yes, she's yes. on, um, we work with her on Signals Into Space. Right. So she, um, we co-wrote four, four tracks, I think, didn't we? On, so how did her you on, discover on her? Well, so I've, I've told, I mentioned that her, her track Lake was one of those, I was in a student house and someone just happened to have this set record and it got played because we loved melancholic kind of songs at the time. So how did you discover such an obscure artist? Well, we, we've been fans of her since, um, uh, since the mid 80s, really, since when she was releasing on, on through Crepuscule. We were always big fans of the Crepuscule label. Right. Pretty much all of Anna's output has been on Crepuscule. I think, in fact, I think, it all has all of her solo stuff. Um, uh, so it's really from buying those records really from back then. Um, I lived in Brussels for a short time with, uh, working with James, um, James nice at Crepuscule. Um, so I met, met Anna, I think once or twice then. And, um, uh, yeah, just been fans of her records since then really. Um, and, uh, I can't, quite i think she's always sort of been on our kind of maybe she's maybe always been on our list as it were as a <laughs> as a sort of a desirable collaborator um i can't quite remember how we sort of ended up thinking about her for this record Ian, i don't know if you've got, got any memory of that but i can't remember what kind of triggered it because we did have the um you know, some of the tracks if not kind of all of them at quite a well-developed stage before we, um, you know, thought about Anna being kind of suitable for it. So, um, yeah, it, it must just be, you know, the quality of the voice and, uh, you know, the, the, the strength of those other records. You know, we can clearly imagine, um, you know, her voice you know, over that music. And it's a really a, a, an updated version of the uh, Robert Wyatt process. You know, it's kind of emails and uh, electronic files backwards and forwards and you um you kind of hone these things into some kind of uh shape but you know Anna was able to record all her pieces um uh you know all her vocal takes um at home uh, in the studio that she has there so you know we we haven't met her since starting this kind of project um you know unfortunately you know there's not been an opportunity to do any of it kind of live so it's all been um you know online yes um, she was brilliant. Though. I mean, she was a great correspondent. I mean, it was a quite a long period of time that we were working with her. I think it was, I mean, it was, a, a, I would say it was well over a year we were working with her on these tracks. Um, she was very generous with her time, wasn't she? She did you know, a lot of takes and tried out a lot of different ideas. Yeah, we got into, I think in the middle of all that, um, my wife had a baby, I think, which put it on hold for a bit. So it was quite a long, drawn-out process, wasn't it? Um, probably a year and a half working with Anna, I would say, something like that. Um, uh, her husband, Michelle Delory, um, uh, produced or engineered or produced, I think, a lot of her records from the 90s. So he he was, you know, engineering 
her her work um, her recordings in their home studio. So, you know, technically it worked brilliantly. You know, I was sending her files and um, yeah. she was sending stuff back. And she did a lot of layering as well, lots of kind of harmonies and um, and layering. She wrote all the lyrics as well. We had a lot lot of correspondence about the songs and her ideas and um, some of the themes as well. So it was, yeah, it was, it was really good fun, actually. She was, uh, she really kind of had, you know, she, she really influenced the record, I think, to, to an extent. And the, the, the kind of uh, the experience of it really was very exciting for us as well. It was, it was you know, it's a bit like Ian was describing hearing Robert Wyatt's voice on it. You know, we're, Ian and I, I think are so familiar with Anna's voice being, big fans of her old records and um uh it was fa- really great hearing her, her her tone on 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 the tracks and i think we've we think it fitted it yes. really well and um yeah it was great and it, it kind of um do, doing those four tra- it, it really gave us something to work the record around as well having four vocal songs it really it makes structuring the whole thing a lot easier in a way you've got some really solid stuff to kind of Work everything, work everything around really. So, um, so yeah. what? What's your plans then? You know, if you we can have plans for for the next couple of years. Do you have anything in the pipeline that you're sort of working on or wanting to collaborate with? We have something that we are trying to get um, started at the moment. We did uh, um, we recorded a, a session on a, a live session on a, a Thames barge. Um, in a, in a town, uh, Malden, quite near me here, uh, with a couple of musicians that we uh, work closely with. So we've got to, we want to shake that into a, a, a kind of mini LP or LP. We'll see how it goes. So we, we've got all the raw materials. Um, we're just beginning to uh, sift through those now to uh, to work out what we need to do. So that was with um, uh, sax and flute player and um, uh, a percussionist who plays vibes as well so um as well as the guitar and bass and electronics so we got quite a lot of material to uh, get through from that uh, that particular session and do you so produce that'll be, ne- your- that'll be next year and do you produce it all yourself um yes well we yeah uh, we do although actually for for um signals into space we worked with uh, an engineer called andy ramsey who's uh, in stereo lab he's the drummer in stereo lab um he's got a studio in south london quite not far from where i i live um so we we did um signals into space with him and in fact we've done a couple of other bits with him as well uh, a couple of single and, and meditations we did with him as well so um we we pretty much we pretty much do everything yeah we could do it ourselves but um we've not got a studio uh, we used to have a studio we lost that years and years ago and so we we sort of made a policy a few years ago to try to design a kind of we were influenced by robert <laughs> robert fripp's um what did he call it intelligent mobile units i think he used to refer to himself as <laughs> and, uh, when he had the you know the a Gibson guitar, the real, real to real tapes, and he was doing the kind of um, what's the album he did with you know the um, Evening Star kind of is that right? Is yeah, Evening Star that kind of stuff. So he, he kind of designed this, and I, I we quite like the idea of this mobile intelligent units. I think so. We've sort of pared our equipment down, although we've got quite a lot of stuff in storage. But the idea was that we would sort of pare it all down, and that we'd have a a sort of a 
quite mobile setup of gear that we used for writing and recording and playing live as well. So it, all, all the same sort of gear, flight case stuff, quite neat, you know, all this, get on a plane with it to do gigs abroad. So we sort of spent a long time deciding that, de- designing it, spending probably more money than we needed to on it, trying some stuff out, ditching other bits and all this kind of thing. So we've got this kind of sort of setup now and um, sorry, it's a very long answer to this, isn't it? But we, we haven't actually got a recording studio. So in order to, to make, finish the records, we want to go to a proper commercial studio to finish it off. And um, so most recently we, we've been working with Andy, Andy Ramsey um, uh, to do that. Um, yeah. And he, he, we found him really nice to work with. Um, obviously, you know, we, you know, we, we like Stereo Lab and kind of, you know, he, he gets where we're coming from and, you know, he's got a sort of, you know, there's something in common with him musically, I think. And uh, we like his approach. Um, so we, so he kind of, in, yeah, he sort of, I guess you call him more of like a mix engineer, really. So we pretty much, everything's pretty much finished, but it's, it's really mixing the whole thing in a proper studio, really. So, so that's, that's how we, and the allowing that's how we would like to sort of work for the immediate future, I think. And then we'll do that for this, this barge project that Ian's just described. Um, um, and yeah, and hopefully for whatever will come after that. I mean, I think we'll, you know, once we've finished that, we'll probably hopefully move on to another LP or some EPs. We've got some old material we found as well on DAT from the, late 90s we've got quite a lot of that that we'd like to shape into something as well which sounds very good to us um, right so there's quite a lot yeah to do and, and playing live really i mean you know like everybody else all, everything we were, we were going to do this year has been cancelled and you know we'd like to keep developing that which we've been trying to develop this new a new live band the group that we recorded on the barge which is greg heath um sax player and a guy called rick rick ellsworth who's a a vibes player and percussionist so we were we were gonna we had a few a few gigs with them set up so we've never actually managed to execute it <laughs> yeah because of covid so we're desperate to do that because i think we feel that will work really well we've got a very loose way of uh working with the electronics which is you know semi-improvised um and then and you know and we'll have the live players with us as well so we're really keen to do that uh, it's yeah. been frustrating not to be able to do it recently it's very tricky. Well, look, this has been fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for giving me your time. And uh, great that we eventually got this together. Wow. So, um, yes, that's been great. But, I'll, um, yes, I think that's, that's pretty good, actually. Well, Ian, Paul, thank you ever so much for this. Thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure. Very, very enjoyable. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. <laughs> I hope that's good. And I'll keep in touch and I'll send you the link when I, I put it together. If that's That'd be great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do keep in touch. Yeah. yeah I it's will. nice to meet you finally. Okay, then. Take care. Take care. See you. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, I'm sure you've guessed, is the end of the interview. Massive thank you to Paul and Ian from Ultramarine for giving me the time for that. Um, And, uh, yes, we got there. It was a little bit tricky having a a three-way conversation, especially via Zoom, but we got there, and I think that was good. And massive, um, yes, always massive appreciation for giving me the time. This has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. And also, these have all been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. So you can find them and listen to all of them, eight, nine hundred of them, to your heart's content. Anyway, look, have a great week and stay safe.